Good morning, everyone. You know, for the last year and a half, I've been reading mostly memoirs. And it's not something I specifically set out to do. It's just I read a couple that were really good. And so I just kept reading them. And there's something I really love about getting to learn people's stories. It feels like an honor to carry people's stories. And I love reading stories about people who contribute something beautiful to the world, who make an impact, they set out to achieve a goal, and they do, or they become successful in something they love. But before that, there's like 10 years <laughs> of obstacles and practice, and just when they start to wonder, maybe they should do something else and give up, things slowly come together. And something that continues to catch me off guard when I read these books is just how much people need people. And maybe it catches me off guard because in Silicon Valley, there's not a lot of space to boast of our weakness, of how much we really need help. There's a lot of space to boast of our success. And maybe it catches me off guard because it's not like the sort of one time someone mentioned their name and it opened a door networking thing. It's often this ongoing, sustained, sometimes dramatic support and solidarity. Kate Bowler, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, she had stage four cancer. She's written a handful of books and before she had cancer, when she was 28 and writing her dissertation, she would randomly and regularly lose mobility in her arms. She'd be driving her car and all of a sudden she couldn't grip the steering wheel anymore. And people, the doctors didn't know why this was happening. And you can imagine how frustrating it would be to be writing your dissertation while experiencing this. So for a month, she went to live with her parents and she dictated her dissertation and they wrote it word for word. We all need people, don't we? I mean, if there's anything that I hope we learned throughout the pandemic is that we really need community. We don't do well in isolation. But do we need Christian community? Do we need Christian community? Is it enough just to have community? What is it about Christian community? This week, we're starting a new series on community. It's one of the four C's, one of our main values at the River Community. And I don't think I could answer that question fully. Do we need Christian community and what is it and and how do we achieve it? But I hope through this series that it will sort of expand your vision of what community can be like and how we pursue it. So let me say a prayer for us before we get into God's word this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence into this space. We invite you to open our hearts and our imagination to expand our vision and to speak to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. It's one of my favorite passages to talk about community. And the book of Mark is all about Jesus, his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And things move really quickly in the book of Mark. Already in chapter 2, Jesus has performed miracles. He's gaining a following. And there are also some people who aren't super excited about things that he's doing and saying. So we're going to jump in chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, 
when Jesus again entered Capernaum. The people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man who was paralyzed, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, what does this fellow, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say this to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Okay, so I don't know why, but whenever I read this passage, I think of this scene in the movie Mean Girls. And I know I'm reaching back a little bit here, but Lindsay Lohan's character in the movie, she was homeschooled until high school, she goes to public school, and she's hosting a party, and she looks at her two friends, and she says, okay, I got enough crackers for like eight people, do you think that's going to be enough? And they look at her like, yeah, because they know it's about to be a raging house party. I just think of the people hosting this party. They're like, okay, Jesus, we set the table for your 12 friends. And he's like, oh, we're about to blow the roof off this place. Like, this is a raging house party. The trash is overflowing. There's a stain on the couch. Antiques are being broken. There are so many people that they're standing outside of the house trying to get in. Amen. But there's something not quite right about this party because there's a man outside of the party. There's a man who can't get to the community. This man who is paralyzed is navigating layers of isolation. The first layer, very practically, he cannot get to the house on his own. He has a harder time getting around. He needs help. But then also, in this time in Israel, in this context, many people assumed that if you were suffering physically, if you had a disability or an illness, you brought it upon yourself, that it was your sin or your parents' sin, and so there's a good chance that people would have stayed away because of that. But then there's this other layer because most likely there were very few people who understood what life was like for him. Right? Maybe you can think of a time when you were grieving or going through crisis and there were people who wanted to say the right thing, they had good intentions, but then they say something and it's actually like a little hurtful because they just don't understand. There's not a lot of people who could understand. But here's the thing. He's navigating these layers of isolation and I've said to people in this room before, it's like there's a miracle before the miracle because he has four friends. He has four friends. And not four friends who pass him by and say, hey, maybe you'll catch Jesus on his way out. 
not four friends who walk by him day after day, week after week. Hey, good to see you. Sorry, I'm running to this meeting. I don't really have time right now, but like next time. Four friends who are present with him in his isolation. Now, before we get to the earth-shattering, roof-shattering part of the story, there's something that I'm curious about. Where is this guy's family? I mean, think about the story that we just heard of this mom taking care of her son, of Kate Bowler's parents helping her write her dissertation. Where is his family, his parents, his siblings, his cousins, his aunts and uncles? It's possible that maybe they just weren't here in this moment, or maybe they abandoned him because his life was too hard. You know, we just celebrated Easter. It's a day that we remember and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's really easy to sort of, in Western culture, focus on the cross and resurrection individualistically. Like, what does this do for me? I'm saved. What's the equation? How am I good with God? But the people who wrote about the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Bible were very concerned with the kind of community that was formed because of it. Over and over again, we are called brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We're a part of God's family. But we lose some of the significance of this. What does it really mean that we're brothers and sisters? It's interesting. I recently read in this book by J. Kim, Analog Church, that in the first century world, The bond between siblings was the most significant familial bond, more significant than the bond between spouses. So what does that mean for us as brothers and sisters in Christ? I just wonder if there are people here this morning whose family hasn't been their family, and they're waiting for their church to be their family. Or I wonder if there are people here this morning that have hoped that their spouse or partner would be their family, that they would fulfill the role of community, but no one person can live up to those expectations or that role. What I love about the way community, the friends show up in this passage, is they do what you would expect a family to do. They carry him. They decide they're going to carry him to Jesus. They're going to take him to the party. Only one problem. There's this like huge sea of people. And it's like when you go to a concert and you're trying to make your way to the stage, but the people in front of you are like, no way, man. I've been here since 7 a.m. You got to wait your turn, right? So this might be when you would expect them to give up. We tried. But I just imagine one of the friends is like, you guys, I got this really wild idea. We could just put a hole in the roof. And then the practical rule-following friend is like, what? We can't lower him through the roof. This is someone's house. Yeah, but this is someone's life. This is a person. This is their brother. So they lower him through the roof, and the man who's paralyzed is looking up like, please don't drop me, you guys. Like, this is wild. And Jesus looks over and says, whoa, whoa, guys, listen. I'm not finished with my sermon yet, and there's some people over there. They're watching you really closely, and I know they're not going to like this. So, like, why don't you just try to catch up with me in a couple hours, all right? 
he says, son, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, because we are God's children. And there's a lot I could say about how this plays out and what Jesus does, but I don't want to draw attention away from what I think Mark is emphasizing here. It says, when he saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. And that could be the four of them, or it could be the five of them, but certainly we can look and say, wow, like what great faith these friends had. So confident in God's authority, Jesus' power, his love that knows no bounds. So committed to their friend, they're going to destroy a roof to get him to Jesus. As I was writing the sermon, I reached out to a handful of friends who have navigated some challenging things the last few years and asked them, what did solidarity look like? What meaningful things did people do to show up for you? And one of my friends has had some really significant health challenges. She's about my age, and there are many days that she can't leave her house. And she said, one of the most meaningful things that people have done is there's a group of friends at her church. They have this kind of rotation. And on the Sundays when she can't make it to the church building, one of them comes to her house and they watch the live stream together and they worship and pray and reflect. See, even before the man is healed physically, there's already healing happening because he's in community. He's not isolated. He has people. And then Jesus removes every layer of isolation. Your sins are forgiven. It's not going to keep you from me or people. Get up and walk. That's not going to keep you from the family of God. You are here. You are welcomed in. And this is really good news for us. Because church, we are sick. We are sick. And I, I'm not talking about COVID. It's not even something that we can cure on our own. I'm talking about the separation between us and God and us and each other. It's the hyper-individuality. It's the emphasis on self-reliance and self-dependence, the success and the competition that has led us to this epidemic of loneliness. The cross didn't create this kind of avenue of success a strength for us to overcome every obstacle on our own, it created a fellowship, a community of people, a family of God. And if you look at this story, the four friends, they sort of reflect Jesus' journey, his heart. Because just like Jesus entered into our isolation, the friends enter into their friend's isolation. Just like Jesus carried his cross, they carry their friend. Just like they buried Jesus in a tomb, they let this man down in a house. And just like God resurrected Jesus from the dead, this man is healed and gets up to walk. Their steps follow Jesus' steps to the cross. But it's interesting because we don't actually know how they decided to carry him. Like, how, did, how was that decision made? You know, was it like they were walking by and the man who's paralyzed is like, hey, guys, guys, you guys, you got to come over here. There's this like house party happening. There's all these people. Jesus is there. He's healing people. Please, please, can you take me to Jesus? I think he could heal me. I think it's more likely, though, that the friends approached the man and said, we want to carry you to Jesus. Why? Because when our life has been a certain way for so long, 
If we're suffering for so long, it's really hard to imagine that life could be any different. And it's really vulnerable because every time you ask, every time you pray, every time you hope that something could happen, you set yourself up for the disappointment if it doesn't. So sometimes we need people just to have hope for us. But then I imagine if this had happened here in Silicon Valley, in our time and context, it might have played out like this. The friends go to the man, they're like, hey, listen, this guy Jesus is over here. We'd really like to take you to Jesus. We think he can heal you. And the friend says, what? Guys, no, I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. Like, you're going to have to carry me. It's far. I'm heavy. There's a lot of people. How are we actually going to get in to see Jesus? Because how many of us have the well-rehearsed, I'm fine, when people ask us how we're doing, even though we know we're not fine? And if we're being honest, I'm sure there's many people in this room who would say they feel more comfortable being the friend than the man who's being carried. Because it's really vulnerable to let people carry you. And we don't want to feel weak. We want to feel in control. We don't want to be disappointed. Maybe we've trusted people or opened up to people and they haven't responded well in the past, and so we're just going to keep it to ourselves. And it's really hard to get to the place where you can say, can you help me? I need help. Can you take me to Jesus? I really need Jesus. But on a relational and personal level, I don't know how to receive solidarity without vulnerability. It's going to be vulnerable. And just like the friends reflect the heart of God, so does the man who's being carried. Because how did Jesus respond when he was in isolation and suffering? He said to his friends, please eat this last meal with me. I'm eager to spend this time with you. Please, would you stay up and pray with me? And then someone carried his cross. Jesus was vulnerable too. To be a part of the family of God is to stand in solidarity with people and each other. But it's also to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and carried. One of my other friends who I asked while I was writing this sermon, he went through a season, it was like longer than a year, it just felt so unrelenting, thing after thing, he lost his job, he lost his housing, it just felt like it, it was never going to end. And I remember during that time, there was one day he invited people to pray and fast for him, and he said it was really meaningful because there were a couple people who fasted who had never fasted before. And I look back on that, and I'm a little sad that he had to organize it himself. But also, how bold and brave and vulnerable to ask for that and to say, this is what feels like solidarity to me. Could you step into this with me? So I think there's a couple invitations for us this morning. The first, there's an invitation to step into vulnerability to open up with someone in our life, our community, to be more real or transparent about something we're navigating. There's also an invitation to solidarity, to step into something someone else is going through, their suffering, to stand with them. And I think there can be a lot of obstacles that come in the way, that stand in the way of us doing this. 
And a big part of it, I think, is our own anxiety and sometimes awkwardness of like, well, I don't know how. Like, what do I say? What if I say the wrong thing? You know, I just want to be helpful or with this person. And so we are going to have some time to talk in groups. But then also on your way out, we'll hand you, I created a handout. The first, the front side has prompts to lead you into vulnerability. I stole them from Jeannie Allen's book, Find Your People. And they're very practical, like, hey, no one knows that I'm navigating this right now. I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to know this is happening. Or it's really hard for me to open up because this, that in itself is vulnerable. And the other side, my friend and I came up with some prompts for solidarity. Again, it could be as simple as, hey, I imagine there aren't a lot of spaces where you can be authentic. I'd like to create that space for you. In the family of God, we reflect God's heart and take steps towards a resurrected life when we live in solidarity and vulnerability. And I honestly believe that we don't need to cover up the hard things, that in the fellowship of God, we can face the world as it really is in all of its suffering and all of its injustice and bear up under it together. And sometimes it will feel like we're running into a wall. It'll feel like defeat and it will be hard, but we can trust because of the resurrection of Jesus that we will overcome in Christ together. Let me say a prayer for us. God, we are, we are thankful that because of the sacrifice of your son, and your resurrecting power, we have a family. We are a family. And we're thankful for the life of Jesus who shows us and teaches us what it's like to live in that family, to live in that love. And God, I ask that you would continue to expand our imagination, that you would teach us to live in solidarity and vulnerability, to walk with each other, as brothers and sisters, we pray. Amen. So we're going to give you some time to discuss now in groups, and we have a couple questions for you. The first is, what are some obstacles that you experience when it comes to vulnerability and solidarity? And the other question is, how have you experienced solidarity? In seasons of your life, what does it look like? What has been meaningful for you? So go ahead and take about 10 minutes to discuss that together, and we'll come back and worship.